Let's uh, let's begin. Let me uh, let me read the the text for this morning from Matthew seven twelve. It's familiar to most people in our society. It's a very common uh, understanding of the teachings of Jesus. In everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Let me read it to you from the message, uh, because I think it captures some of the important differentiation between this. Well, we'll see in a moment why I'm going to read this one. Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for living. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, and then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, and then grab the initiative and do it for them. We're continuing from last week our Thanksgiving message uh, with this second part of, of uh, a message on gratitude and thankfulness. And what we saw last week is that thankfulness and gratitude are best expressed in action. In history and in scripture, and in the writings of the spiritual masters, and even in our own national life as we read the proclamation by Abraham Lincoln establishing uh, Thanksgiving as a national holiday, we've come to learn, and I summed it up in this phrase from Thomas Erskine, that religion is grace, ethics is gratitude. Religion is grace, ethics is gratitude. We open our eyes to see the blessings of life, the blessing that we get to live, and then we express our gratitude to blessing by doing good on the earth. Religion is grace. Let's talk about that as a way of reviewing last week. Religion is the, that way of being by which the blinders are removed from our eyes and we see that at the core the universe is, God is, the heavens are made of love. That God is love, that grace and mercy and forgiveness and being valued and being appreciated and being cherished, these things are simply the nature of the highest order of things. God is love. Religion is not a provisional kind of thing. It's not a, if you don't do bad stuff, God will love you kind of thing. No, it's not a, if you pray the right prayer, then God will love you kind of thing. No, it's just a thing. It is the way reality is. God is love. Consequently, forgiveness just is. And mercy just is. And love just is. And religion is that way of being that opens our eyes to this reality. Religion is the awe that overtakes us at the sight of such truth. Religion is the deep fulfillment and satisfaction that comes to us as we savor and live in such truth. Religion is the inner transformation that happens as we see these truths, and religion is the changed behaviors that happen to us as we live in these truths. Religion is grace. And ethics is gratitude. Ethical behavior, living a moral life, being people of goodness, doing good, these are simply the natural expression of life that is rooted in this kind of religion. Living a good life 
just happens naturally as we are rooted in the truth of love, as we live lives that embrace and fully are immersed in grace and mercy and forgiveness and value and worth. And when we experience these things and we come to see that ultimacy, that God, that, that all that is, the heavens encompass these and wrap us in these, define us in these, we come to realize that our religion is grace and the natural outflow of that is gratitude. And we live a good life accordingly. Well, that's kind of what we talked about last time. The purest expression of this concept that religion is grace and ethics is gratitude comes from a lesson, um, comes from one of Jesus' teachings that we covered in a lesson a couple of weeks ago where Jesus taught us that we are to love God with all of our hearts. That we are, we could put it another way, that we are to love, love with all of our hearts. Be wrapped in love, be immersed in love. See ourselves defined by this divine love dynamic. See ourselves not having to clamor or to strive or to strain to be validated, but instead to have this deep experience of being loved, of being honored, of being made precious and made worthy because we are immersed in divine love. Love God with all of your heart. Love love with all of your heart. And the natural outflow of seeing that reality, Jesus continues, that you will love your neighbor with that same passion, with that same love that you love yourself. The text we read this morning puts it even more succinctly. It says, you will do to others what you want them to do to you. When people screw up, you do to them what you would want done. If you screw up, you would want to have a balance between being challenged so that you grow, but at the same time being forgiven for your failure. What you would want done when you fail is that you would want to be seen as more than your screw-ups. You would want to be seen as more than your failures. That's what you would want. When you feel judgmental toward another person, you do what you would want done. You would want someone to do the hard work of listening carefully enough to understand you, of seeking hard enough to know what it is that's going on inside of you. Why do you do what you do? What are you thinking that causes you to act this way and to live this way? What is going on in your heart? What hurts are you carrying around that cause you to have this instinctive response? You would want to be understood You would want to have a loving balance between both being judged and being understood. You would want that, so extend to that. Hold back the hate-filled emails because you don't like to receive hate-filled emails. Hold back on the tongue-lashing because you don't like to be tongue-lashed. Hold back on demeaning others because you don't like to be demeaned by others. Don't shut people down because you don't like to be shut down. Don't ignore people because you don't like to be ignored. And don't leave people outside feeling as though they are outsiders because you don't like to be left outside feeling that you are an outsider. This is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now Jesus didn't invent the golden rule. He was actually stating something that had been around for several centuries before he stood up and gave that sermon on the mountain. 
Uh, but it existed in its inverse form before Jesus. What Jesus did is take a negative and turn it into a positive. What had been formally called, well, now we call it the silver rule. It went something like this. A contemporary of Jesus, his name was Rabbi Hillel, restated it this way. That which is unpleasant to you, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole law, and the rest is but its exposition. That which you find unpleasant, do not do to your neighbor. The silver rule states in this negative the same principle. It says, don't do bad things. Do no harm. The motto of Google, the motto of the Hippocratic Oath, don't do harm, don't do evil, don't do bad stuff. That's the silver rule. And this is a very important form of ethics. It is the ethics of disengagement from evil. Do no harm, do no evil. But when Jesus turned it around and made it a positive instead of a negative, he did more than just change the words. He was actually expanding a concept considerably because Jesus taught it as a positive. He wasn't saying avoid evil. He was saying do do the things that you would want done to you, which is much more of an active approach, not a passive approach of avoidance, but an active approach of engagement. It was saying, yes, as followers of Jesus, certainly do no harm. Not to yourself, not to others, not to society, not to the earth. But the Christian life is more than simply avoiding the doing of evil. It is a purposed intent to go out and spend your life making the earth a better place. To be active and intentional in doing good. To salt the earth with goodness. To preserve the earth with goodness. To light the darkness with goodness. To do good. When we catch a glimpse of the divine, when we are awakened to love, when our religion has had its way in us, we don't find ourselves hiding away. We don't find ourselves keeping ourselves pure by disengaging from the world and avoiding those temptations that would cause us to do evil. No, the fruit of following Jesus is a constructive form of engagement. In a generosity chat some many months ago, maybe even a year ago, I told you Wesley's famous quote that says, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, as long as ever you can. When we follow Jesus with all our hearts, it bears more than simply the fruit of avoiding evil. And it awakens us to a power inside of us to bring about the kind of goodness that will transform not just our own lives, but the world around us. Many of us come from the Protestant tradition. Consequently, we uh, are inheritors of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, and there's two more I can't remember. But one of them, Sola Gratia, means only by grace. Now, we Protestants were so incensed by the church's idea that people could buy their way to God that by the purchase of indulgences that we developed one of these doctrines. Now, if you're not familiar with indulgences, what they were is they were a simple strategy for raising funds for the church. 
Here's what had happened. We had decided that it was a good idea for people when they have sin to confess their sin because it's good to get that stuff out and to talk about it. So we made a box for that kind of confession to happen and we put people in the box in order to make their confession. After they made their confession and that confession had been heard, we decided it was a good idea for them to do some act that would, that would demonstrate a turning away from that and going in a different way. So we developed and we called it a penance. And then we decided that we were wasting our time having them do acts that were uh, just really serving of the world and we decided decided that those acts could be translated into funds, and so we decided that their acts could be just dropping some money in on the way out, paying for their sins, and then we decided we were missing a trick. We should really charge in advance of the sin. <laughs> and we can say, if you're going out tomorrow night, you really ought to come buy your indulgence uh, sheet right now so you can do that, and then you can buy your way into the grace and the, good, the goodness of God, and that incensed the protesters, so they protested. And they decided that they would resist that kind of thinking about uh, finding one's way to God. The protesters were also incensed by the idea that you could only find your way to God by being a member of the club. In this instance, it was church membership that was part of the club. So if you were in, then you were in a state of grace, and if you had done all the right things so that the church would say you'd met the club dues, then you could be in, and if you were in, then you could find your way to God. If you were out, however, you could not find your way to God. That also incensed the protesters. So based on these two principles, that you could buy your way to God or that you had to be a member of the club in order to find your way to God, they protested, and in their protesting, they defined a doctrine, that said, no, 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 that's not the way that you find your way to God. You only find your way to God because of God's grace and because of God's goodness. Sola gratia, only grace. It is only by the nature of God's love that you find your way to God. It is only by the way of God's mercy and God's grace that you find your way to God. It is only because God is love and that God is mercy and that God is forgiveness that you find your way to God. You don't get there by buying it or by paying to fund some cathedral. You don't get there by jumping through the church's hoops so that you belong and you're part of the club. You find your way to God because God is love by grace. And that became the battle cry of the Reformation. Sola gratia, only by grace. Now, when the church did that, when the Protestant church did that, they solved a problem. We don't have to find our way to God by paying indulgences anymore. We don't have to find our way to God by belonging to the church anymore. No, only by grace. And when we solved one problem, we inadvertently created another problem because human beings don't tend to swing from out of balance to balance. Human beings tend to swing from out of balance to counterbalance. And so when we said sola gratia, we brought up this troubling point. If it's only about grace, then what about good works? What about doing good? Is this also a way one finds one's way into the life of God? And so there has been this tension among Protestant people for all these years since then, going back and forth around this issue of good works. Do good works matter? Are they important? Are they not important? Are they critical? Are they less critical? Are they ranked somehow as importance where we would put grace a little higher and works a little lower or some such thing? Incensed as the Protestants were by the abuses of the indulgences and the patriarchal heavy-handedness of church membership, they did this swing, and as they 
did, they set up a construct I believe is a false construct. And that is they said, belief, that's it. Belief is it. Belief is all you need to do. Belief is all there is. All you have to do is believe in God's goodness. All you have to do is believe in God's grace. All you have to do is believe in God's love. That's all. You get your belief right. You get your faith right. And that's all you need. That will save you. That will get you into the spiritual life with God. And that will get you to heaven after you die. That's all you need is you need belief in, faith in God's grace and God's goodness. Now the problem with this doctrine that has now become the ancient doctrine of sola gratia is that it takes the whole idea of good works, of doing good, and it leaves it dangling out there without any hook to hang on, without any place of centrality in the Christian experience. It makes doing good unnecessary as part of the spiritual journey, and it makes it at least... Uh, a lesser concern for those who follow the Christian life. And when that happens, there is a term that theologians use to describe that process, and it is called cheap grace. Cheap grace refers to a religion that is so rooted in belief that it has abandoned works. That seeing God's love and seeing God's goodness and embracing divine forgiveness and embracing divine mercy has somehow been separated out and made the epicenter of the spiritual life and these other things became less important or less a part of the spiritual life. And so all you have to do to get into the flow of the God River is simply to believe. Well, Wesley, the same guy I quoted a little while ago who said, do all the good you can by all the ways you can and so forth. He called faith without works. He called it the grand pest of Christianity. Sure, he said, we are saved by grace. We are saved when we come to acknowledge and recognize that God is love, that the goodness and the free gift of God's uh, grace is manifest in Jesus, and we come to embrace that and accept that. But, he insisted... Uh, genuine faith cannot be separated from good works. Any tree has both roots and leaves. Grace may be the roots. Belief may be the roots. But works is the leaves. Can a tree exist without both? Our experience of the spiritual life is more encompassing that we may have struggled with when we were reacting against the abuses of the church and we said this is the point we needed to embrace the point and say no this is the point both roots and leaves well that's a very helpful image you know here it is we expand our understanding of the spiritual life the spiritual journey to be the whole tree that includes the roots of the grace and includes the leaves that are the works yes that's very helpful that's very useful um we live a life that is rooted in our understanding of God and it naturally, quite naturally, produces a life of good works. Because when we come to understand the dimensions of love that is the divine, we are naturally transformed by the experience of that love and we naturally bear the fruit of doing good works. Well, what a beautiful image that is.
except for the problem. And the problem is it doesn't always work that way because lots and lots of people come to belief and don't move into the full flowering of good works. So we must not be fooled. There's another player in the game, and that is the player of the false self. And the false self is doing everything it can to make this natural process unnatural. The false self is doing everything it can to make this rooted in divine love not manifest in the naturalness of bearing the fruit of good works. The false self is working really hard to keep us too busy by telling us that we will only be precious and valuable on the earth if we are hyper-performers. And so here we go, going, 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 spending our days, filling up all our times, doing, 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 so that we can be valuable and useful. The false self is doing everything it can to keep us afraid, afraid that if we don't make everyone happy and if we don't please everyone, if we don't do everything that we're supposed to do, then we will not be of worth, we will not be of value, that this stuff that's down there in the roots isn't really true after all. You're not precious simply because you are. You are precious because of what you do, and you really aren't that precious at all, so you better really do a lot. And so here we're going, 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 and the false self is doing everything it can to keep us living in this shrunken reality, into this diminished reality. So we shrink our worlds down... So I end up doing the stuff that makes me okay or that fulfills me or that satisfies me or that validates me or mine. And we shrink our worlds and the leaves begin to atrophy and they fall off and we keep on going, we keep on believing, but we stop bearing the fruit of the spiritual life. Well, that's the trap that we get stuck in. And so those who have gone before us recognize this reality. We're not the first generation to be trapped in this reality. And so they have spoken to us and they've said, ah, we know about that. Here's what you do. There is a way to get out of that reduced life. There is a way to find yourself restored to the naturalness of living rooted in goodness of God, rooted in the goodness of God and bearing the fruit of good works. But it's going to require something of you. And the thing that it's going to require of you isn't popular. There's a spiritual word that we use to describe this unpopularity, and it is the word sacrifice. Now, as I said, that's not a popular word among Christians these days because the idea of denying self in service to something that is greater than self, this idea has fallen on hard times. And there are several reasons why. We can, of course, blame the consumerist culture in which we live. We are marketed to day in and day out on the basis of this is good for you and the good life is determined by what you get. And so, of course, that has had something to do with the reason why we fall away from the concept of giving sacrificially to something that is bigger than ourselves. But I would say for people who have been in the church for any length of time, there are a couple of other reasons that may be even more destructive of the concept of sacrifice. Many of us were burned 
Many of us who have been around the church for any length of time remember the big media scandals of the 80s and the 90s. And what, what happened is we were called to make great sacrifices. We were called to send in large amounts of money. We were asked to make sacrificial offerings in service of media empires that were going to bring the promise of goodness and the life of God to our nation, only to discover that those who had asked great sacrifice of us were frauds. But it wasn't just the media fraudulence. There was also at the local church level many spiritual leaders who spoke of making great sacrifice in service of the building or in service of the vision or in service of this endeavor or that endeavor only to find out that we were serving the building of someone's ego rather than the building of the community of faith. And so, like people who have been bitten by a snake, we are afraid of a rope. The idea of sacrifice in service of something bigger than ourselves is frightening because we've been burned by that. And for others of us, the idea of sacrifice is off-putting because we were driven by a false self-need for validation and we made great sacrifice in service of that. I give up this career plan or I give up this financial uh, offering or I give up this time or I give up this or that in service of the great divine in the belief that if I do this, then God will bless me. Or if I do this, then God will favor me. Or if I do this, then I will be blessed in the city and I will be blessed in the country and I will be blessed when I go in and I will be blessed when I go out and I will be the head and I will not be the tail. And we quoted many of the scriptures from the Deuteronomic Code believing that if I do this great sacrifice for God, then God will in return bless my life. And when we walked further down the spiritual journey, we found that that sacrifice did not translate into the great blessings of God. And that left us once again disillusioned and predisposed to avoid the whole spiritual concept of sacrifice. And so sacrifice has burned many of us and we're not in a hurry to revisit it. But all that truth and all that experience doesn't negate the essence of the message of Jesus who said, if anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves and they must take up their cross. All of that experience and all of that having been defrauded, it doesn't change the essence of the message of Jesus that said, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. All of that experience doesn't negate the teaching of Jesus that says that if you would come to me, you must lay down your very life. Because sacrifice is the essential ingredient of the spiritual journey. We end up laying down the false self and it costs us because it's the only self we think we have. 
I had a hero, Jim Elliott, when I was young, and I read his biography, and he had a very well-known quote, and he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That which the divine asks us to sacrifice is that which we cannot keep. False self is being dismantled. Clinging to me and my and mine is being dismantled. We are, each one of us, on our ways to our death. My children came home this week, and I had been thinking about what I wanted to talk to them as they were home from college. And of all the things that I could have said as a life lesson, I said this, I want you to remember that you're going to die. I want you to keep in mind that death is an inevitability. Because if you keep in mind that you're going to die, you're going to make different decisions. If you keep in mind that this is just a temporary, passing, transient reality. And I said to Haven especially, I said, you're young. And right now you're thinking you have an infinite number of journeys that you can take. But as soon as you've taken six or seven of those journeys, you realize they're going by very, very rapidly. You're going to take your college journey, and then you're going to take your married journey, and then you're going to take your children journey, and then you're going to take your off to college for the kids journey, and then you're going to take your last journey, and then you end up in the grave. And if you make that, make your decisions on the basis of the reality that life is transient, it's a whisper, it's a vapor. You cling to things so much less tightly. You hold things with such a greater open hand. You are willing to make sacrifice for that which matters, and you're willing to let go that which ultimately doesn't matter. And sacrifice is an essential element of finding this natural life rooted in grace and lived in the fruit of good works. Because absent sacrifice, we will cling to that which will keep us from manifesting our lives by good works. Because the spiritual journey of seeking and finding and searching and knocking is demanding. There are things that must be laid down. Time things that we would want to spend on self must be set aside in order to pursue that time this way. Chasing after resources that we would want to do must be set aside in order that we can pursue life this way. It requires of us a sacrifice. As followers of Jesus, ours is a quest to seek and keep on seeking until we find. Well, here's what we're taught. We're taught that our religion is grace. We are taught that at the core of reality, there is the love of God. At the deepest part of our heart, because it is at the deepest part of reality, there is love. And if we have not found that, ours is to set aside whatever needs to be set aside so that we can pursue that until we find it. If your heart has not been rooted in the understanding that yours is an unassailable worth, 
If your heart has not yet been rooted in the understanding that yours is an infinite preciousness, then you are to set aside whatever needs to be set aside until you can pursue that through meditation. You can pursue that through the scriptures. You can pursue that through reading. You can pursue that through quietness and community. You do whatever it takes until you have found that your worth is infinite. And it may take sacrifice for you to find that. But that is the quest to which we are called as followers of Jesus. To find that place within your experience that you, the very essence of who you are, is found precious and love-worthy by the divine. And, as followers of Jesus, ours is to ask and keep on asking, to seek and keep on seeking, to knock and keep on knocking until we find that there is at the deepest part of our souls an impetus to good works. There is at the deepest part of you a natural way of being good. A natural way of caring for the world. Not a put on should do good. Not a put on supposed to do good. Not a build the empire of a charismatic spiritual leader good. Not a validate your own sense of worth before God good. But a natural expression of true self good. That which is in you because the spirit of God is within you good. As natural as a leaf is to a tree. A natural outflowing of our being. And if you have not yet found that good. Yours is a quest to ask until you find it to seek until you find it, to knock until you find it. For it is there, and it is yours. If we have not yet found this natural spiritual life, ours is to lay aside whatever needs to be laid aside until we find it, for it is ours. So I'm not asking of you anything that is a recipe for some kind of performance-driven religious burnout. We've done that before. This is a call to discern and to discover what is already within us. This is the call to find within ourselves that capacity to do good because the Spirit of God indwells us and to remove that from the realm of an idea and to integrate it into our lives in the realm of experience. To find how it is that spiritual people tap into the indwelling Spirit of God so that they live lives bearing the fruit of doing good. If you have no gratitude, you are on a quest to seek it until you find it. If you have no goodness to give, then yours is a quest to seek it and to stir it up and find it until you tap into it. It is there for the Spirit of God is within you. As the kids were coming home, I recorded some movies that I saw for us to watch over the holiday, and one of them was the movie Radio. And many of you have seen it. It's an old one. But if you're not familiar with it, Radio was the name of a young man who was the nickname of a young man who lived in a small southern town where he was adopted by a football coach uh, of the local high school team. And this young man was developmentally challenged, and he spent his days wandering the streets, pushing a cart, isolated and alone. And the football coach saw him and over the course of time began to invite him to come to team practices, began to drive him home after the practices, eventually let him be the team's equipment manager, 
got him into some classes in the high school and invited him from a life of isolation into a life of integration into the community. Eventually, because of this coach's leadership, the community began to embrace this young man as their own. And he was no longer alone. In the film, as this young man's mother was talking with the coach, she expressed an understandable suspicion. And she questioned the coach, asking him what was going on. And she said, you know, coach, it wasn't that long ago when I would see you drive up in that truck of yours, and I would wonder why you're doing what you're doing. So coach, she said, why are you doing what you're doing? And he paused for a little while, and then he said, well, you know, I figured it was the right thing to do. I figured it was the right thing to do. That was the point. It was the right thing to do. And all the resistance that came from the players didn't matter. And all the mocking that happened by the booster club didn't matter. And all the resistance that he got from the school system didn't matter because it was the right thing to do. Because if I was developmentally handicapped, and if I was wandering the streets alone, and if I was isolated from the community, and if I was afraid of them, and if they were afraid of me, And if my world had this shrunken little reality down to the place where I spent my days walking alone, pushing my shopping cart, that's what I would want someone to do for me. I would want them to come and get me. I would want them to come and include me. I would want them to come and embrace me. It's the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is inside you. Because the Spirit of God is inside of you. The right thing to do is inside of you. It indwells the deepest part of your being. The right thing to do is in there. And you may have to sacrifice to find it. You may have to be purposeful and intentional in laying aside those lesser things in pursuit of the right thing to do. The right thing to do is in each one of us. It'll manifest very differently for you than it will for me. It might be that for you, it would be thinking to yourself about all the people who are losing their homes in this economy and figuring out who is out there trying to help them rebuild their lives and then getting on board with them. It might mean going out of your way to find out who's helping and then lending a helping hand to the helpers. It might be doing what the elder moms are doing. They prefer, wow, women of wisdom. I think elder mom sounds better, but if they want to do it, I'm going to call them wow. (laughs) They're getting together remembering when they were young moms and remembering when they were single moms and remembering when they were overwhelmed moms. And they're putting their heads together trying to figure out how it is that we will help our young moms. It might be manifest in you similarly to a family in our church who was in the hospital several years ago with a life-threatening issue with their own child over the Easter break. And remembering the heartbreak of those days, every Easter since then they have gone back to the hospital with baskets full of bunnies and baskets full of blankets and baskets full of games that the kids on the cancer floor can play with. 
and then spending their day talking with the parents of those children, sharing their story, sharing their grief, sharing their hurt. It might manifest in you by sending a card to a widow after the hoopla has settled down, after the funeral is done, after the estate has been established, after all those things have been taken care of and now she's alone and now it's quiet and inviting her to coffee and letting her know that she needn't be alone. Do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways that you can in all the places you can at all the times you can as long as ever you can. It's the right thing to do. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would awaken us to the goodness that is within us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir us to the quest to find our gratitude and stir us to the quest to live out that gratitude by doing good. Help us to express that gratitude well and then help us to live in the sacrificial manner required to tap into the indwelling presence of the divine. Be that so in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.